Hello, and welcome to Talking About Tumors with Ryan and Ryan. This is Ryan Holstead. And this is Ryan Quinn. And today we're going to be continuing our discussion on cholangiocarcinoma and gallbladder cancer. For those of you who missed our last episode for an overview, including risk factors, clinical presentation, we refer you back to our previous episode where we go over these things and talk about the treatment of these cancers in the metastatic setting. So today we'll be focused on localized cholangio and gallbladder cancer. So many of the issues that came up in our previous discussion will be relevant here as well, um, as with our discussion with localized pancreatic cancer, which is to say that these are, uh, that the localized setting for these diseases is a relatively uncommon presentation, and we're in an area with limited evidence and multiple uh, specialties that are involved, including surgery, radiation, and systemic therapy. Given that cholangiocarcinoma is even less common than pancreatic cancer in the localized setting, Furthermore, complicated by the fact that tumors can arise in many different locations within the liver, within the biliary tract, and within the gallbladder, there's a lot more variable presentations and a lot more limited um, solid evidence to base our decisions upon. There's not a nice standardized resectability criteria like what we have in the pancreatic cancer, which that being said, there is a, a reasonable amount of data available that has led to the general consensus that some adjuvant therapy should be administered following treatment. Although the extended benefit and the best treatment to use uh, remains an active area of investigation. And if you're in an area where there's clinical trials looking to address this question, certainly something to make use of. So to frame today's discussion, we're going to be talking about the cholangiocarcinoma is based upon where they arise. Although this is not as relevant once the disease is in the metastatic setting, the way that each individual location has been studied and included in trials is somewhat variable. Briefly, the nomenclature, should you be reading on uh, any reviews of this topic, you'll see the term ICCA, PCCA, DCCA, and then of course gallbladder cancer. And these are respectively referring to intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas, perihilar cholangiocarcinomas, and distal cholangiocarcinomas. Although all of these diseases are essentially the same pathology, there's thought to be different risk factors as well as um, different behaviors due to unique challenges with resection and feasibility of radiation. So intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas are those that rise from the biliary tract within the liver. When localized, this will often show up as a solitary lesion on a CT scan. If it is solitary and potentially resectable, as determined by surgeons or a multidisciplinary tumor board, our preference would be to resect this. You may actually want to even avoid a biopsy to confirm. Sometimes the radiographic appearance is very convincing, and there is a, albeit rare, somewhat a significant complication of needle tract seeding. And experts have report that this is uncommon to arise. Some retrospective studies have shown rates as high as 6%. Um, however, more contemporary studies usually think that the risk is less than 1%. And what this is, is a needle biopsy when the needle is being retracted from the tumor, seeding the needle way with tumor cells. And even if you obtain a curative resection, there may be a local recurrence along that tract. Given that, if this is a tumor that's going to be resected, it would certainly make sense to remove it and then do the pathology analysis afterwards. As with our pancreatic cancers, the goal with surgery is going to be obtaining an R0 resection and five-year overall survival with intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas with R0 resections approaches about 60% and curative estimates around 30% at the range of five years. We'll get to the the best evidence um, for adjuvant therapy in the setting will be chemo alone and this is primarily in an R0 or R1 resection and we'll get to the trials I've looked at that later. 
If the tumor is unresectable as an intrahepatic cholangial carcinoma, um, targeted treatment options do exist, and this could include something such as embolization, either as what is called bland embolization, or chemotherapy embolization, also known as TACE or TACE. These are interventional radiology or surgical procedures, depending on where you work, and these have shown to be an effective way of treating unresectable localized tumors that are, um, that are accessible um, through the arterial pathway. Other localized treatments include SBRT, uh, or stereotactic radiotherapy, as well as external beam radiation. There's been some small studies that have shown uh, up to five-year survival um, at 40% with a chemo radiation for locally advanced unresectable tumors. If, if your center is one that uses SBRT, this would be done with, without chemotherapy as there's no role for concurrent chemotherapy with hypofractionated radiation. Moving along the biliary ducts, uh, we get to our perihilar cholangiocarcinomas, our PCCAs. And these are defined as tumors arising from the cystic duct all the way to the second order bile ducts. There's a outdated name that's used for some of these tumors that arise in this area. When they cause biliary obstruction, they used to be referred to as Claskin tumors. And you may still hear this discussed by surgeons or radiation doctors during uh, multidisciplinary tumor boards. This term has fallen out of favor because the original series published by Dr. Claskin uh, include both intrahepatic and extrahepatic um, biliary tumors in addition to the perihilar, which is what we more commonly are thinking of. The perihilar tumors are the most common site, so there is some additional data here beyond our intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas. Being mindful that this is primarily a systemic therapy discussion today, I just did want to bring up that there is some indications for liver transplantation in these tumors. Liver transplantation is not shown to have any benefit for intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas, but there are some there are some multicenter re- retrospective studies that have shown good long-term outcomes and potentially increased curative intent by um, treating these tumors with a concurrent chemotherapy and radiation, followed by a planned hepatectomy and liver transplant. Similar studies with intrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas have shown nearly 0% cure, but five-year overall survival for patients who are um, able to go through this treatment have had survivals up to 82%, keeping in mind that these would be highly selective patients in very specialized centers that both have the ability to get a patient to a liver transplant as well as do so on a clinical trial setting. The regimens that were used in these trials were usually neoadjuvant 5-FU-based chemoradiation therapy, followed by brachytherapy to the primary tumor, and then capecitabine maintenance leading up until the hepatectomy and, and liver transplant is available. If you happen to have a patient that may be concerned for this, this usually will be decided by the surgeons before you see them. However, important to get them to be seen at a specialized center where this is a treatment available. For tumors that are resected without transplant, we'll be going into shortly. There's evidence for either systemic therapy as an adjuvant option or chemoradiation in the adjuvant option. Distal cholangial carcinomas are tumors that are anywhere distal to the PCCAs all the way up into the ampulla, which is a separate entity. The ampulla tends to overlap with pancreatic cancers, so we will refrain from discussing that in too much detail today. So lastly, gallbladder adenocarcinoma is also included in many of these clinical trials. One way that this can be diagnosed is incidentally on a a laparoscopic cholecystectomy in a patient who's coming in with suspected cholecystitis. For these patients, if it's a T1A lesion, there's really no role for any adjuvant treatment after a cholecystectomy because the three-year overall survival is approaching 100%. 
If it's greater than T1B, they need to be referred to surgical oncology because they would need um, a re-resection with resection of the adjacent liver segment, as well as resection of adjacent lymph nodes. Gallbladder cancer usually recurs within the first 12 to 24 months, so something to keep in mind when you're doing surveillance on these patients. And they also use the term conditional survival, so basically the longer you survive without a recurrence, the greater chances of survival that you have. So patients that are recurrence-free at 24 months have a greater overall survival than patients that don't recur at 12 months. So there's usually a lot more surveillance within the first two years. Gallbladder cancer tends to have more distal recurrences as opposed to cholangiocarcinoma. The exception is patients that have positive margins. So now that we've kind of outlined our disease sites, I guess we can talk a little bit about the limited studies that we have available, primarily two randomized phase three trials and one phase two swab trial. So one of the first studies looking at chemoradiation for biliary cancers is the SWOG0809 study. This was a phase two study. It was a single arm trial, so there was no comparator. Every patient got chemoradiation, and they're basically comparing the outcomes with historical controls. So something to keep in mind when you're interpreting the data. So the study included 79 patients with extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma or gallbladder adenocarcinoma, and it included patients at high risk of recurrence. So anybody with a T2 to 4 tumor with either positive margins or uh, node positive disease. So patients that are already considered high risk for recurrence. And there'd be an R1 positive margin, so microscopic disease. And as I said, this was a single arm study. So every patient got capecitabine with gemcitabine followed by chemoradiation with a capecitabine-based radiation. So every patient got four cycles of capecitabine, gemcitabine, followed by again radiation with a capecitabine backbone. The study, compared to historical controls, did have a pretty good two-year overall survival rate of 65%, and this is better than anything we'd seen previously. It was actually similar in patients that had an R1 versus an R0 resection. So whether or not you had positive margins, not positive microscopic margins, didn't really affect the overall survival. Two-year overall survival was 60% in patients with an R1 resection versus 67% in patients with an R0 resection, and this was not statistically significant. So due to the study, the ASCO guidelines actually state that you can consider chemo-RT using this capecitabine, gemcitabine for four cycles, followed by capecitabine-based radiation for anybody with a resected extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma or gallbladder adenocarcinoma. I think your point that using a historical control to compare outcomes is, is a, requires a bit of an asterisk. And I think it's important to keep in mind that as time goes on, our ability to manage disease in the metastatic setting gets better as well as our ability to properly identify staging. So as imaging gets more precise, we're, we're better at isolating the truly lower stage patients compared to those where we might admit missed a small metastasis distantly. So in general, historical controls are not something we look at. That being said, uh, overall survival at three years for a resected cholangiocarcinoma of 65% is a, a good outcome and certainly a treatment worth considering. So one of the largest trials that we have looking at adjuvant chemotherapy is the BILCAP trial, which was a phase three randomized trial looking at 447 patients completely resected with either intra or extrahepatic cholangiocarcinoma or gallbladder cancer. And these patients were randomized in a one-to-one fashion to observation versus adjuvant capecitabine, 1,250 milligrams per meter squared, twice a day for eight cycles. About half of the patients in this study had no negative disease, 
and 62% of patients had an R0 resection, so negative margins. And the intention to treat analysis, so the study was initially a negative trial with an overall survival of 49.6 months versus 36.1 months. However, when they did a per-protocol analysis, it actually did become statistically significant with an overall survival of 53 months versus 36 months with a hazard ratio of 0.75. Five-year recurrence rate survival in the intention to treat group was 34% versus 31%. Recently, the studies also had a a long-term survival um, update, and once again, the survival was remained in non-significant difference. However, they, in the follow-up publication, did a pre-planned sensitivity analysis adjusting for risk factors that were not stratified in the initial patient selection. These were uh, binodal status, patient sex, tumor grade all somewhat small subgroups, but they did find when adjusting for this, there was a hazard ratio of 0.74, unable to do significant statistical testing given the post-protocol nature of this analysis. Yeah, so I think some caveats to this study is that it was, again, a pretty heterogeneous group of patients with multiple different tumor types. There was a significant, about 40% of patients had an R1 resection, and then you know, the problems with looking at the per-protocol analysis rather than the original intention to treat analysis can all kind of confound the study. But definitely one of the largest studies that we have looking at the benefit of adjuvant chemotherapy. Yeah, there's certainly been a lot of criticisms of this. You know, it did not meet its primary endpoint. Using a per-protocol endpoint is not ideal. I don't think we've discussed intention to treat versus per-protocol for many of you. This is something you're already familiar with. It's probably showed up on your boards for internal medicine. But just as a reminder, an intention to treat means that when you're randomized, regardless of whether or not you receive the treatment, you're included in the final statistical design as if you plan to receive that treatment. This is to try to reduce bias and be more reflective of real life. In a per-protocol design, we only include patients who actually received at least a dose of capecitabine within our treated group. And those who did not receive any capecitabine would be considered in the control group. The understandable limitations of this is the bias that some patients randomized to capecitabine having a poor outcome may then be censored from the the trial group and cause the interventional arm to appear um, much more significantly improved. There's certainly a lot of criticisms of this trial for that reason, and I've seen various opinions on whether or not this is truly a positive trial or something worth recommending. But as we'll get to, um, the only other trial, phase three trial that's shown any improvement in outcomes was using the medication S1, which is only available in um, Eastern Asia, which has a similar properties to Cape Cytobine. Given that that is not available in North America or Europe, and that the bill cap shows at least somewhat positivity without other individual chemotherapy regimens being available, it, it still is considered to be the best we have. Another caveat worth mentioning is the dose of 1250 milligrams per meter squared is often not tolerable in the North American population due to differences in metabolism of this drug. Thought to have multiple reasons behind that. The last trial that we're going to talk about looking at adjuvant chemotherapy alone for biliary cancers is the PRODIGE-12 study. This was a study of 196 patients looking at adjuvant gemcitabine oxaloplatin versus observation in patients with a completely resected cholangiocarcinoma or gallbladder cancer. The majority of the patients, so 86%, had an R0 resection, and about 50% of patients had node-positive disease. 
This was a negative trial. At 47 months of follow-up, there was no progression-free survival benefit or overall survival benefit to the addition of gemcitabine oxaliplatin. The three-year overall survival in these patients was 60% in the chemo group versus 65% in the observation group, and this was not statistically significant. They also did some pre-planned subgroup analyses to try to see if any specific group of patients or tumor type would benefit, and there was consistently no benefit to any group of patients with the addition of gemcitabine oxaliplatin. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. You know, this also included patients with intrahepatic, extrahepatic, and gallbladder tumors. It had a more intensive chemotherapy than our S1 or capecitabine trials, and yet was negative. I think that really calls into question how effective adjuvant systemic therapy is in these patients. Yeah, I agree. It'll be important, I think, to do more of these studies going forward. Unfortunately, since they're so rare and you tend to loop, lump together multiple different tumor types, it's pretty hard to interpret the data. So just uh, briefly on the role of adjuvant radiation alone, once again, this is best studied in our extrahepatic and gallbladder cancers um, and with patients with R0 and R1 resections. These are no, this is all based upon non-comparative trials, with the largest one being the SWOG trial, which we discussed previously. And there's a few other smaller phase, there's a few other small phase two trials and observational trials using either capecitabine, gemcitabine, or 5-FU based radiation combinations. And patients with an R2 resection, there's no role for adjuvant therapy, and I tend to think of these as being an unresectable or locally advanced tumor. I think the decision whether or not to immediately follow this with adjuvant chemotherapy and radiation with the goal of trying to eradicate the remaining tumor is a as a provider-based discussion with the patient, as certainly is based on limited evidence, and these patients do have poor prognosis. So there's really no indication for neoadjuvant chemotherapy in these diseases, with the exception of patients who have locally advanced disease that's considered unresectable. These patients are typically treated similarly to the metastatic setting with cisplatin gemcitabine, or another chemotherapy combination with the hope of downstaging the tumor so that you can do a resection. However, I think the proportion of patients that actually have their tumor shrink to the point that it can be safely resected is pretty low, but that still is the strategy that we use in these patients. Yeah, I certainly expect to see more clinical trials opening up, looking at the role of new adjuvants for the same reasons as we've discussed with our pancreatic and we will be discussing with rectal cancer later but remains investigational and would, would not certainly not be considered an evidence-based treatment at this time. So I think to kind of summarize this very brief discussion of a very complicated disease site is that it's important to realize that based upon where the tumor is arising, there may be variations in evidence for whether adjuvant chemotherapy or adjuvant chemotherapy radiation have shown a role. So extrahepatic tumors and gallbladder tumors being the ones studied in the best studied with the SWOG chemoradiation trial, and adjuvant chemotherapy alone being shown to have a role for our intrahepatic, extrahepatic, and gallbladder cancers. For those with overlap, I think it will certainly be center-dependent um, center or provider-dependent for which treatments you end up seeing or you end up using yourself. If you are going with an adjuvant chemotherapy alone regimen, capecitabine for eight cycles, Usually a 1,000 milligram per meter squared versus the 1250 that was used in the trial would be what you'll end up seeing, especially in North America. So if you're, and if you're using a concurrent chemoradiation method, the best evidence is the SWOG regimen, which is using a capecitabine and gemcitabine induction, followed by radiation concurrently with capecitabine alone. Continue to look for trials that you can enroll these patients on and make use of your multidisciplinary tumor board meetings. 
And then in terms of surveillance, after these patients complete their adjuvant chemotherapy and or radiation therapy, there's really no evidence that, you know, early surveillance, aggressive surveillance in these patients really improves outcomes. But we tend to do more imaging and visits within the first two years because if these patients recur, it's typically in the first two years. Thanks again for continuing to listen to the podcast. Once again, we welcome any comments, feedback. We will be moving into a much more um, evidence-dense topic of rectal cancer next, and certainly area with a lot of new um, developments to discuss. See you next time. Happy August, last month of summer. We made it through July. For more information, follow us on Twitter at TalkingTumors, or feel free to email us at TalkingAboutTumors at gmail.com. Please rate and review the podcast. We really appreciate it. And special shout out to our friend John Kim for all of his musical talents. And he's the composer of the music that you're hearing right now. Talking about tumors is not medical advice. For medical advice, please contact your own healthcare provider. Opinions stated on this podcast are by the Ryan who said it and no one else. We have no financial disclosures, and this is done purely on our own time to the sake of our enjoyment of the field of medical oncology. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.